This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guests today are three members of Trine University's Center for Teaching Excellence who will be presenting at the upcoming Fort Wayne Teaching and Learning Conference. Michelle Blank is an assistant professor in the Department of Humanities and Communication. Dr. Jeremy Rents is associate professor in the Reiner's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And Megan Tolan is Assistant Professor and Director of Education Technology in the Frank School of Education. Now, what are some of the things that the Center for Teaching Excellence does to help faculty be better teachers? We have a wide variety of resources that we try to provide. Uh, There is a website where we have resources for faculty to go check out on their own. Uh, We have a Moodle page, which has classes, essentially, that faculty can take on their own. There are different modules where uh, if a faculty member wants to learn something new, uh, they can work through the module on their own and uh, try to add something new to their teaching uh, repertoire. And then our in-person sessions, we generally try to do our best to show faculty what the newest ideas are, what the latest trends are in teaching. And we really want to get faculty to use technology and strategies that work. There's been a lot of research in the last 30 years or so that says our basic strategy of standing in front of the classroom and talking might not be the most effective. And essentially at our CT events, we try to show faculty other things that they can do to engage students, to get students to learn more effectively. Uh, And that's essentially what we try to do uh, at those sessions. Michelle, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has brought disruption in some form to every aspect of our lives, but probably to no area more than education. What are some of the biggest challenges college faculty faced this fall? Well, as we talked with faculty across our campus and on other campuses and read in the practitioner's literature, we're seeing the shift to online as one of the biggest challenges. Most of our faculty have never taught in that environment or designed for that environment, and it's different than teaching face-to-face. You kind of feel like your superpower got taken away because you can't see the student's eyes, you can't react to their reactions. Um, So that's been a difficulty. And also, the students, in many cases, are uncomfortable and unprepared, and some were even really resistant to having to be online. They they much prefer the face-to-face environment. Perhaps an even bigger and more nebulous challenge is the uncertainty. None of us know what tomorrow is going to hold, as we've seen. And so it makes it difficult to provide stability for the students and give them um, just the sense that we've got this because nobody's got this. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen next. So flexibility has become paramount, more so than ever. Teaching's always a, a flexibility type of of environment, but now even more so. Megan, actually, um, when she talks to you in a little bit, she's worked on her dissertation, and it's on this very topic. So kind of a follow-up on that. You mentioned that faculty lose their superpower. They can't see as well how students are reacting or maybe not reacting to the content that's being presented. So what do faculty do to compensate for that? 
it's much harder to create community. We have to work harder at it. We have to make sure we're interacting with students outside of the classroom more if we're not going to get to see them in that face-to-face environment. Things that we can do would include, um, you know, during the classroom time, on Zoom, when students arrive on Zoom, greet them by their name, just like you would when they walk into the classroom. Make sure you have activities that include them, because it's really easy to get going on your lesson, especially in hybrid when you've got some students in the classroom and some on Zoom. It's easy to get moving and then forget that, oh, these, these students are here because you can't see them. And they're usually very quiet, um, just kind of moving along. Um, So intentionally having places where you stop and say, all right, Zoomers, what do you see here? Or I'm going to be coming to you next. Being very transparent and letting anyone who is either online or in the hybrid part, in the Zoom part, um, letting them know what the procedures are for participating in the class. That makes it easier for them. They don't feel like they're interrupting when you've got it in place. So it just takes a lot more designing on the part of the instructor to make sure we're including everybody. Now, you also talked about, too, that sense of certainty being lost. And really, again, in a lot of areas in our life, and not just with the COVID-19 pandemic, but what are things faculty can do to kind of restore that sense of certainty? So I think that um, kind of moves us into the stress that everybody's facing, uh, not just in the fall, but still, it hasn't gone away. And, and so faculty are not only facing stress of designing and teaching online, but I met with um, some faculty in a CTE event near the end of the semester. And one of our big stressors is helping students deal with this uncertainty, helping them deal with what's going on at home. Um, I mean, there have been students, I had a student last semester at another institution whose parents both lost their jobs. And so she had to go home and was trying to do school and help her parents provide for the family. They're in situations they've never been in. And so as faculty, one of our big jobs is always helping students remove barriers to their learning but those barriers are different than we've ever faced, and they're much bigger. So when we met as a group near the end of the semester, one of the things we talked about was how do you eat an elephant? Not only for the students and those giant barriers, but for the huge stressors we're facing. Well, one bite at a time. We've got to break those huge stressors down into smaller pieces that we can then figure out ways, either for the students or for ourselves, to help us manage those. You talked about meeting with students outside of class. How do you accomplish that when you can't even really meet together in class? Right. Through Zoom. I have had more Zoom meetings from my living room (laughs) than I've ever had. Office hours look very different now. It's no longer, you know, I'm going to be in my office from 9 to 11, pop in or make an appointment. It's very much, hey, let me know and we'll hop in the Zoom room. Um, I just did an advising appointment yesterday with a student via Zoom. We're just having to do everything in in that way. I've had some students who felt more comfortable calling or didn't have the internet access to do Zoom, so we've done stuff over the phone. Um, Students are getting much better at using email (laughs) because they have to. So they're stepping up, and we're helping them do that. But Zoom has become uh, kind of the ed technology right now. So what are some practical things that faculty or other educators, maybe not even necessarily at the college level, can do to effectively deal with the stressors that they have with the whole situation that we're in right now? 
Sure. First, we have to remember that stress is normal, it's unavoidable, and it's even necessary. So if you need more on that, go see Dr. Blaze in psychology. <laughs> he, can, he can dig in. Um, but when we have too much, then it becomes problematic. And right now, we've got too much. So we often hear the term manage stress. Well, we're in a situation where we probably can't get rid of a lot of our stressors. They just are. But how can we manage our well-being in light of the stress that's in our lives? So when I met with faculty and we chatted, um, not only did we talk about breaking things down, but we also talked about the importance of remembering that everyone is stressed right now. Our students, the administration, our families, everybody. So we need to cut each other some slack. It's really essential. We need to be flexible, not major in the minors. We need to really show a lot of grace right now. Just remembering that everybody else is facing this too in different ways. But the positive side of everybody else facing that is we're not in this alone. There are other people that we can go to. We can work in community. CTE is a great place for that. We can work in community. That might look like um, taking a walk grabbing a coffee. It might look like bouncing teaching ideas, or it may be something as simple as just chatting, just sharing out, this is the stressors I'm facing. Do you have any ideas? That's what we did in that session, and it was excellent. Um, we also, during this break, challenged faculty to put into place one habit that would be positive for their well-being. So find something you enjoy, something you love, and make it a habit in your life to give you, create for yourself, kind of that less stressed environment. The ideas that were bounced around with our faculty were nature, exercise, writing, um, singing or playing an instrument, a lot of creating types of things that just helped us feel less stressed and helped us to um, just find a, a place where, where we could feel a sense of well-being. Jeremy, when you and Michelle were last on this podcast, we discussed presentations you'd given at the Fort Wayne Teaching and Learning Conference. And that conference is happening again this spring. Can you give a refresher as to what the conference is and what it will cover? The Fort Wayne Teaching and Learning Conference is put on by uh, seven or eight regional schools. It's been going on for quite some time, uh, more than 10 or 15 years. And essentially, the main purpose is to bring faculty together from all of those eight different schools. Secondarily, we really want people to, again, learn something new, find a new strategy, uh, develop or identify something that they could change in their own teaching. And it really is a great opportunity to get to know people uh, at other schools and to see uh, what they are doing. Now, when you say other schools, are these colleges and universities, or are there high schools or other levels of education involved? For the planning committee, and generally, it is the regional universities. So uh, PFW, Manchester, St. Francis, Ivy Tech, uh, Indiana Tech, and I think there are a few more. I just don't have the list uh, on the top of my head. What changes is the conference experiencing this year as a result of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Early on last year, uh, we made a decision as uh, the planning committee to go fully online. It is a fully virtual conference for the first time. Um, it is something new that we're going to try out. But through the planning process, it looks like it's going to be fairly successful. 
We are essentially going to have every speaker Zoom their session, and we're still going to try to have people be as interactive as possible. And then, like all the previous years, we have a very well-known uh, plenary speaker. This year, we happen to have James Lang, author of uh, some very famous teaching books. Distracted is his most recent book. We've used small teaching as a resource for book clubs here on campus. And then he also has other uh, books about cheating and some other topics. So we're very lucky to have James Lang as our main speaker. And again, it's going to be completely virtual. Uh, he's going to Zoom from his uh, office in Massachusetts. Uh, but we still think it's going to be an excellent opportunity for people to hear um, what one of the leaders of higher education has to say. Why is it important for faculty here at trying to be part of events like this? Well, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier with the, the mission, the, the reason we're doing CT, we really need people to try to step out of their comfort zone a bit. Often as higher education faculty, we get stuck in one mode, and it doesn't necessarily work for all of the students that we have. So going to conferences like the Fort Wayne Teaching Conference, attending sessions uh, that CTE offers, uh, we're trying to give faculty alternatives so that their students can learn uh, as best as they possibly can. But that community aspect is also very important. Finding others that have struggles that you do is very powerful. And when you can go and meet people and see that you have similar struggles and you can uh, talk with them about how you address something, how they address something, uh, it can be a very powerful exchange. And it's nice to have people in the region, Fort Wayne, uh, which could be your colleagues for years to come. And I would imagine with faculty, teachers in general, undergoing unprecedented stresses right now, that, that that's even more important than ever. Absolutely. And as Michelle talked earlier, um, some of the stress release, uh, stress management, self-care, all of those topics are very important. And generally, as teachers, we've ignored them for as long as teachers have been teachers. And having other teachers to talk to, um, strategies to manage that stress is certainly uh, very valuable. Now, Michelle, your presentation for the Fort Wayne Teaching and Learning Conference is on moving students toward what you call adult learning habits. Can you explain exactly what adult learning habits are and how they differ from what would typically happen in a classroom setting? Mm -hmm. There are five fundamental principles of adult learning. And Malcolm Knowles is kind of the, the father of the adult learning um, ideas. And they are self-directed, experiential, relevant to current roles, problem-centered, and self-motivated. So if we think about just a couple of those, um, self-directed, for example. In the classroom, our students, for the most part, are used to being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And it's kind of playing the school game. And some of them are really good at it. That's why they've got the grades they have. Um, but that's not what our adult lives are like. Often, I mean, my dean doesn't come and tell me what to do, how to do it, when to do it. She wants me to figure it out. There's a self-directed aspect for adult learning. And that's often missing from the classroom, even at the college level. Because let's face it, it's easier for me to tell you what to do, show you how to do it. Um, and it's easier for the student to just check off the boxes rather than actually have to engage and be self-directed in their learning. Another one might be um, the experiential part. Often, 
our students sit and we give them content. And we never really take into account the background and the experience they bring with them. In my classes, I find that I learn as much or more from my students as they do from me because they all bring experiences with them. That's part of adult learning. And so when we think about these five principles, they're often missing. And I'm going to be talking about ways to incorporate those. So what are the benefits to, and I mean, you mentioned a little bit like learning from your students and things like that, but what are some of the benefits that an educator gets from employing these habits and what sorts of benefits do students see? Mm -hmm. So during the past decade or so, we've really pushed active learning and rightly so. We need students to be engaged. But what if we move beyond mere engagement and actually empower students to be self-directed? to use their background and experience, and to solve problems, really big problems. What if we actually let them think and try and fail and try some more? The benefits would be myriad. So as an instructor, I get so much joy out of watching my students get it and be able to do it without me. Because when they leave here, I'm not going to be there with them. They have to gain some sort of self-direction, some sort of self-motivation. And for the students, well, there would be tons of benefits. Most importantly, we stop simply preparing our students for something, a job, grad school. We stop preparing them for something and begin helping them prepare themselves for anything. If we look at our current environment, we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what jobs are going to be out there in 10, 20 years. So if we can help them prepare themselves for whatever they face, that's a huge win. One of the things we're finding is that employers are not so interested in content knowledge. They expect the content knowledge. The things they really want to see that can differentiate one prospective employee from another are things like self-direction and self-motivation, these exact adult learning habits that we want to start instilling in our students. So what are some things that educators can do to build these types of habits in students? Well, that's what we'll be exploring in the workshop February 21st at 1045. So. But the short answer is it depends on the class and the instructor. There isn't one perfect answer for exactly which strategies are going to work. Um, we're all different people and our students are, are different makeups. But a great way to start is to think through places in your course where learners can engage in choice that self-direction uh, and self-motivated part of adult learning. For many learners, this is hard because they've been conditioned to just do what they're told. So if we can get them to engage in choice and to be self-directed and self-motivated and let them practice that, then when they step out into whatever the world might throw at them, they're more prepared. Another area that we'll investigate is utilizing problem-centered learning. Um, a lot of our classes do this, but not all. And it's helpful for everyone. So this addresses that problem-centered and problem-solving principle of adult learning. And it requires the application of background knowledge and could be role-specific. So it hits some of those other principles. Those are two that we're going to be really focusing on, but there are others as well. So when you talk about integrating choice, what comes to my mind is the choose-your-own-adventure books I read when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> if you pick this one, you flip. What does this look like in a classroom? It may look just like that. Um, so one example is like the tech comm class that I teach. Um, the students work most of the semester in, in a group, and they choose 
the problem they're going to try to address. They choose who they're going to interview on campus or off campus. They choose which resources they're going to use from their research. Um, then they choose which aspects they need to highlight. So it's all about them putting together this proposal and pitching it. So everything really is in their court. I'm just there to guide them. And if they make a really bad choice, you know, if I've got a student or a group who's doing a project that has to do with biomedical and they're like, well, I'm going to go interview Dr. Blaze. Um, probably Dr. Gershutz would be a better choice. So I do intervene, but not until after. And it kind of frustrates the students. They want me to just tell them, you go see this person and you read this and no. You've got to make these choices because I'm not going to be there. So I try to be as hands-off as possible. And then could you give a little more description of what problem-based learning is or what it looks like? Are we talking about, you know, I mean, I know one of the things we say is that trying students work on real-world projects. Is that the type of thing you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we see this a lot in our, like our capstone projects and our senior design projects. But we can bring this in, like in the TechCom class, and I do this a lot in my children's literature class. Um, what are the problems you're going to face as an educator when you step out, find out in the literature, and then how are we going to address those? So that they're not caught off guard, no matter what they might be facing. Um, for example, this spring, when I teach children's literature, I'm going to require that all of the students teach at least one of their lessons online because that's where we are right now and they need to have that experience. I don't want them to be afraid of that. So finding those real world problems and not just keeping them in the senior design in the capstone, but bringing them into all of the curriculum. So Megan, your presentation offers practical tips for educators working in a hybrid or online learning environment. Can you tell me why this area is of interest to you? Yes, I fell in love with technology forever ago, um, thinking about how it intersects with pedagogy and how we teach and learn, and fell into love with online learning. I never thought that that would be the case. So when I was thinking about this presentation, I wanted it to be something tangible and quick and easy that educators could take and use with their students right away, and to try to make that process feel less intense. So how can I kind of double dip, right? How can I create something that'll work in a hybrid space or in an online space if I have face-to-face, -face, if I have some students here and some students there? So my presentation really revolves around those like quick five easy ways to, to think about teaching, especially when students in a variety of spaces. So what made you fall in love with hybrid or online teaching? Ah, uh, goodness. I think part of it was exciting. And I was thrown into it. I didn't really have a choice at the beginning. And just where I was in my career, I had some awesome mentors. And they were great at what they did. And so to be able to learn from them and challenge myself as a professional was where it started. And then you have moments with students that really changed the game. And I, I knew when I was teaching online at a, a previous job, and I hate six weeks. I taught a six-week online course, and there was a student who I had never met in person before. So I taught that class in the summer. It was probably February. It been six months since the class ended, and she walked past my office, and I knew exactly who she was. So that for me was like, you can teach online, and you can do it well, and you can still have relationships with students. And I think that's a very really common misconception, that it's just this revolving door of regurgitating facts, and it doesn't have to be that way. So having that moment was probably my okay, let's, let's do this and let's make it great. 
I know Michelle uh, touched on this a little bit earlier, but what were some of the challenges that educators faced with suddenly making the transition to online learning this past year? This is an easy answer, and I'll say time. I usually tell my students that they can't, time is not an excuse, but we're going to take that one off the table, right? We never have enough time. So, but I think time was part of it. Um, it's a big shift in just how we think about teaching and learning, and if people are perfectionist or more type A, and that's like they, they know what they do and they have perfected their craft in the classroom, to yank that out from underneath someone and say, oh, you need to do it all this way now, that's a different feel. So I think that big shift in how we teach, um, probably, of course, you know, the technology skills, like if someone doesn't feel comfortable with the technology itself, um, that's going to throw a big hurdle. It takes a lot of confidence to stand in front of a room of young adults and show them what you know. And to do that in a space where you don't feel comfortable, I feel like would be extra hard. Plus, we're still in a pandemic, right? So you're worried about your own health, the news, your family. Um, I know as a mom of two young children, some days were just tough. Like, you you know, but you feel guilty on, at least I felt guilty on both fronts. You know, I'm putting my child in front of a tablet to, to keep her busy so I can teach. and But then, you know, not giving everything to my students. So I think it was just a lot. There was a lot going on. You obviously came into this maybe more comfortable with this technology, but you had stresses as well, like you mentioned, with family and all that. So what did you do to make the the adjustment and to get through this? So two, <laughs> I worked out. I know that seems like something that if I could get that half an hour to, that works for me, and that's kind of therapy. Um, but then also just realizing that everyone's doing the best we can. Like just having the conversation with myself to say, it doesn't have to be perfect. Good enough is okay. And I don't know if you've ever participated in theater. Like, if you screw up your lines and you pretend like you didn't screw up, like, if no one else is really going to know what you really had to say there, except for the other members of your cast, right? So the audience isn't going to know. Students aren't going to know. If that day was only 77%, they're probably going to be okay, right? And they might, I mean, they're going to have off days too. So I think just really trying to take it from a place of, this doesn't have to be the best online course you've ever made, Megan, right? This lesson can be what it is and let that go and kind of move on. That was my, I had, to, I struggled with it at days, but then there were days where I was like, okay, it's good. We're moving on. Um, once the pandemic is over, what role do you think online learning will play at the elementary school level, middle school, all the way up through university education? I think we're already starting to see a shift in like obviously like more tech in schools and parents having more choices and maybe some more magnets in online schools. Um, I can't obviously predict the future. I hope, I hope that there are some spaces for kids who were successful in this environment and teachers who were successful in this environment. I think um, we've heard a lot, at least in the K-12 space, about making sure, you know, equity and access and, and making sure that all of our students are successful and trying to give them that room and that there have been a ton of students who struggle. But there also have been a portion of students and teachers who have been really successful and might really like it. So I'd love to see um, just more options. I don't know how that plays out, but I would hate for a student who really is thriving in this hybrid or online space to have that taken away from them now, right? So how can we continue to create spaces for everyone to be successful? Um, I think in higher ed, we'll see a shift 
leaning into what we're good at, right? Especially here at Trine, you know, we're good with the relationships. I don't see us leaving and going to be an all online campus anytime soon. But, and I do think it's going to depend on student experiences. So you're going to have students who will never take another online class unless they have to. And then you'll have students who will lean into the online space a little bit more just based on what their experience was in that, in this, what feels like a short time, but it's really almost a year now, right? Like, so what are the tips you're planning to share for educators who are working in a hybrid or online environment? I'm going to give away all my secrets. So we're going to talk about the, the last one is just giving yourself some grace. I um, had a trainer years ago who said, if you had a flat tire, would you go out and slash the other three? And that was just in my, like, I was working out. And that has, that quote has kind of resonated with me in my life. Like, you're going to have a bad day, so give yourself a little bit of grace there. That's one of the ideas. I really like the idea of stations. Um, it's something we see a lot in elementary school, but have realized that in an online slash blended space, stations can be really powerful. You still get that small group instruction. You have students over here working. And so, especially in higher ed, if we can, say, okay, U7 over here, U7 over here, U7 with me, um, even socially distanced, of course. But if two, one or one and a half of my stations is digital, then I know that my students who aren't with me face-to-face still get that same experience that they would if they were in my classroom. And then I can do small group instructions to work on relationships uh, and do the, that direct instruction piece um, with, my, with my small group or any type of remediation. Um, so stations being one, um, Talking about keeping it simple as far as our user interface and design goes, sometimes I think we too, we try to do too much, and then it's hard to navigate and it feels overwhelming. So how can we as educators like, keep our workload simple and also keep that user experience for students streamlined? So that's going to be one of the tips as well. Okay. And when you talk about stations, I mean what comes to my mind is an elementary school classroom and you've got you know the the reading station over here and you know maybe some blocks to do math sorting over here and it's students rotating around a physical classroom what does this look like in you know when you have an online class yes that's very much what it is right um but in the digital space like one of the things we did this year specifically um, in one of our education classes was this uh, we called it a progressive lesson plan so progressive dinner where in a regular year, I would have probably had a snack over here and we move around the room, but they stayed in their own spot and we just leveraged the power of collaborative technology. So, um, you know, maybe they all worked on one Google Doc here and then they moved to the next Google Doc or they moved to the next activity um, so they don't physically move, uh, but I can interact with them differently. Now, they might physically move one time. Um, so it could be reading as a station. And, like, you know, this section of the room is going to read. This section of the room is going to do some type of interactive activity. Maybe it's hands-on. Maybe it's on paper. And then over here, I'm having a small group conversation. Or we move to the hallway to have a small group conversation spread out. So definitely leaning into the technology available to have students read and interact online. Um, but they can still have small group convos and do that all on a shared document. So there's some, some space to be collaborative if you are willing to get a little creative. Jeremy, your presentation is titled Talk Less, Teach More. What do you see as the difference between talking and teaching? So the real key that we have figured out over the last 30 years when it comes to learning is that putting information into your brain is not learning, but every chance that you get to pull information out of your brain is learning. So as the teacher in the classroom, 
historically we've thought if we talk, it's going to magically fly into students' brains and it's going to stick there. But that's not how learning works. Instead, the students actually have to use the information that we're trying to teach them. And we can't do that if we're the ones that are actually doing the talking. In the abstract for your presentation, uh, you mentioned that educators need to get out of the way and let students do the learning. Why is this important and how exactly does an educator get out of the way? As I just uh, mentioned, the key to learning is having the students use the information. And when the faculty are up there lecturing, when the faculty are talking, it doesn't give the opportunity to the students to actually use that information. So I'm going to be pretty blunt uh, in the middle of my session. I'm going to tell the faculty members they just need to shut up. Literally, that's all they need to do is stop talking. And hopefully they plan some type of activity for the students to do. And then the remainder of my session will be talking about all the different possibilities there are for getting the students to do something. We want the students to do the talking. We want the students to do the work. And there are a wide variety of activities uh, that students can do. Okay. I mean, what are some common ones that a faculty member might use? I am in engineering, and for me, the very simple thing is to have students do problems in class. Historically, you see faculty members up there at the whiteboard or the chalkboard, and they go through example problem after example problem. But again, we aren't magically getting information to fly into students' brains. We need the students to be doing those examples. So in all of my classes, I don't do the examples. I have the students do the example problems. So um, I might talk for five or 10 minutes on a new topic, and then the students go and do the math. They do the examples either by themselves or with a partner or as a group, and they're going to struggle the first time. It's going to take them some significant effort, and that's okay because they're actually doing the learning. They're the ones doing the work. For classes that don't have problems or might not have math, Discussions amongst students are exceptional ways to get students thinking about things. Instead of the faculty member doing the talking, having students talk to each other, um, students role-playing, students discussing scenarios, there are a wide variety of different ways that students can talk with each other to use the new information uh, from the class that you're trying to discuss. Now, thinking about a college environment, too, the lecture that you talk about or the professor doing that, that's probably more common at a larger university where you've got hundreds of students in the classroom. So I would guess that here at Trine, where we have smaller class sizes, this is a little bit easier to implement. Uh, these strategies are easy to implement in small classes. You're absolutely right. Uh, one of the things that uh, I marvel at is that I actually pulled this off with large classes of 75 in my previous uh, job at Washington State University. I wasn't very good at it, but uh, we pulled it off. Here with our class sizes of 30 or less, uh, it is much easier to have students work in groups. It's much easier to have discussions. But all of the strategies that I'm going to talk about at the conference are certainly applicable to larger class sizes. And there are technologies, clickers, and other things that can be used in those large environments. Uh, so while it is a little easier for us to do here at Trine, they are certainly applicable to any class size. How do you implement these kind of strategies 
in an online or a socially distanced environment when you can't really have students group up or, you know, they may not even be in the same county or state as you, depending on the situation. So one of the nice things about our learning management system, Moodle, uh, there are discussion boards that can be used very easily for those class discussions. So instead of them being live where you're chatting back and forth uh, like we are here today, um, you're going to chat uh, you know, over a few minutes. Uh, but discussions have been a very lively way to get students to interact with course material. And uh, we've been doing that ever since online learning uh, was established. So we just have to use them more frequently. We have to use them in novel and creative ways. And we have to ask questions that are interesting for the students. Sometimes when students hear that they have to do a discussion board on Moodle, they're like, oh, no, not another one. Uh, but as teachers, if we can come up with creative prompts, it will uh, make sure that the students do the work and eventually do the interaction. For the problems, um, there's a wide variety of things that can be done. I generally just send my problems that the students would be doing in class to those students that are remote. Um, last spring, when we went fully online and fully remote learning, I weaved in a few videos or I weaved in a little bit of extra material in with a worksheet uh, that had problems for students to do. And then I am perfectly clear with the students. For my classes, if you want to FaceTime with somebody and work on it, uh, that is a great opportunity to get that interaction. And you'd be surprised how many of our students end up FaceTiming each, uh, each other. I've actually had students in class pull up FaceTime so that they could interact with students that were in class while they were quarantined. So you and I, you know, we use our phones, you know, to about 10% of their ability. Uh, it's amazing what our students can do with their phones and FaceTime. And uh, that student interaction at a distance, um, you know, it, it's certainly something the students can pull off. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jeremy Rents, Michelle Blank, and Megan Tolan from the Center for Teaching Excellence for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back at trineradio.com for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.